All right, episode 112, special one as always, but man, I'm excited about this one. This is with the one and only Levi Muenberg, a deep cut for these free runners that know and go way back. Levi was a legendary free runner in the American parkour scene and just worldwide, really. Um, he's so many accolades and so much to know about him that I'm actually just going to point you to one of his more recent uh, YouTube uploads, which explains his journey and how he went from being that free runner and one of the most successful uh, of his era and becoming a stuntman and, and doing a bunch of cool things in parkour and Ninja Warrior and other things to then going into pig farming. And more recently, he's come back out to not only tell that story, but also start a new conversation. And I think his channel has some amazing videos on it. And that's one of the reasons why I reached out to him and was so happy to have him on board the podcast here. He's got such great ideas and knowledge around so many things and pressing issues of our generation. And this is a discussion that's very much aimed at what are the topical issues of our planetary health right now and sustainability. And um, he's so well-researched. And as you'll see in the, in the videos on his channel and, and in this podcast, he just has such a cool viewpoint and simple direct delivery and synthesis of these complex issues and concepts. And he's just a really cool example, I think, of what, you know, a parkour practitioner also can be. And it's just so cool to to talk with him and catch up a little bit. I hope you guys enjoy this one. We had crazy technical difficulties with Zoom on this. We, cut, we dropped the call like five or six times. So my apologies if the conversation at any point gets cut out. You might hear it. And um, thankfully it was salvage. It wasn't just salvageable. It was like a really great conversation, even despite that, because he's so well prepared. And, uh, so I really hope you guys love this one. Um, please stay tuned at the end of the episode and we'll have more to say. Here you go. Levi Muenberg, baby. All right. Well, thanks again for your time, man. I'm glad you're here. I'm really pumped on this and, uh, glad to be here. Just for anyone that doesn't know you as well, and even for me, because we're catching up for the first time in probably 10 years or something like that. Yeah. Um, can you just give us a background on, you know, who you are and, you know, why we even know each other and, and, and why you're, you're someone that I, you know, look up to in a way, um, not just in parkour, but I'm learning. Uh, you've, you've explored and pioneered some other areas that I'm also following. And yeah, I'd just like to hear, you know, your background with parkour and then where you're at now. Yeah, sure. Um, basically, you know, well, I guess I'll go back. Like I discovered parkour in high school. And so this was like way back in the day before YouTube even existed. And so back in those days, we were hanging out on forums like Urban Free Flow and AmericanParkour.com. Uh, so uh, this is like, you know, pretty early days. And, you know, just training with some buddies in town, specifically like Frosty, um, is from the same hometown as me. So, you know, I connected up with him and his, his buddies and we'd like film ourselves and make videos. Um, and then eventually kind of, uh, going to jams and stuff around the, around the U S, um, connected up to Mark Turok, who, you know, created American parkour. Um, and he kind of created, like put us onto this performance team, the tribe. And from there we started having like opportunities come in to do more professional type work, like parkour performances, you know? 
And, you know, one of my kind of first big, uh, I guess, jobs was the Madonna's Confessions World Tour. Um, she had a song called Jump and she wanted some parkour people to come perform. And Sebastian Foucan was uh, part of that as well, which was pretty sweet. Um, so, you know, I was like this small town kid. I was 19 at the time who just got like thrown in at the deep end of, you know, the entertainment business of, of doing this like world music tour with, with Madonna and her crew. <laughs> and uh, I was super naive at the time and kind of like, you know, had to learn, learn a lot of stuff the hard way, but um but it was still, you know, an awesome time. And so from there, um, I kind of just started, you know, having more and more opportunities, doing more jobs and ended up moving out to Los Angeles for a while and, you know, connected up with the Tempest Free Running and ended up joining their team. And then they helped me kind of get into the whole stunt world and ended up doing stunts for like a couple movies like um, Avengers and, um, and Born Legacy. So, so yeah, and when I was in Albuquerque filming Avengers is when we connected uh, for a bit. Mm -hmm. so, so that was cool to, to connect for the first time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you were such a le I mean, you are, you will always be a legend. I know you probably won't like, you know, tout that yourself, but it is just like you were in that era, you were really one of the very first American free runners that really, um, had a presence and an influence in our culture, like full stop, I would say, just because you were one of the first people out there and you, you did have this huge presence on American Ninja Warrior as well. And you had this, uh, you know, you did the jump city thing, you were all over the place. And there was, there was just a few of those, you know, characters back then in the tribe was pretty much it, you know, back in the day, almost, you know, I was even before I really got into it. I, I started training around 2010. And yeah, when I first learned of all the people, you know, your name came up a lot, obviously, because um, you really blazed a trail. So appreciate that. I'm, I'm you know, I, I wish I came in sometimes earlier because it seemed like it was a really, you know, as much as I got to explore the unknown of parkour still, and there's still a lot of unknown. It's like, man, when you guys got in that day, way back, it was completely just unpolished. The whole, the whole scene, the whole culture was just ready for, for anything. Yeah, man, it was, it was so like, uh, I feel like it was just being in the right place at the right time for the most part you know, and um, I, I don't, I couldn't, I can't say I really like planned. It's not like a career path that I, pursued. Yeah. it's like, it kind of just like, I fell into it in a way. Yeah. Um, although I'm super grateful and it was, it was an awesome experience, you know, to get to like travel the world and, you know, make money and be doing all this fun stuff with my buddies. So, you know, all in all, it was just an amazing experience. Um, but, you know, after a while, kind of all that constant travel, um, as fun as it was, you know, I was beginning to feel a little bit uprooted, sort of like I, you know, I didn't have a good sense of like my own identity. And, and because I was getting into the whole stunt culture, which is a very different, <clears throat> like feel and community from like the parkour community, which, you know, parkour community is like awesome. Mm. Um, but like the stunts is a whole different culture, you know, it's like a lot more competitive and, you know, uh, I don't know, two faced a little bit, I guess <laughs> I don't want to speak too broadly there's amazing stunt pe people and stunt business and everything but sure but we hear know, that a lot with la right with not just l not just stunts but la and just performance and mm -hmm. entertainment is just it can be it can be a little bit like that and that's not a dog on anyone but yeah that's what that's what the stereotype is anyhow yeah so you know it just didn't feel quite like a fit for me mm. um and kind of at the same time i was i was um you know learning more about like the world and like 
the problems with the world and, and getting kind of um, really distressed and <clears throat> kind of ha having some anxiety about these sort of like existential problems of, of our world. And so, you know, I kind of got to this sort of breaking point where I just want, I just decided to like move back home where, you know, I grew up on um, kind of like an old farm that isn't active, but it's just like a big vacant sort of farmland that my family's had. So mm -hmm. I kind of moved back home onto this vacant piece of property and just tried to like sort of reboot my life from scratch, <laughs> so to speak, and in, in trying to do it in like a more like, um, you know, sustainable way um, and, and sort of like living more of a simple life and connecting more with the earth and stuff. Um, so that was, that was, yeah, kind of like this big pivotal, pivotal point in my life that sort of took me on a different trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can you go into that a little bit more with me just you know, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm sure I don't know what your journey was like with it. Did you get a lot of blowback, blowback from people or like, you know, obviously people are asking, like, where did you go? Because you did just kind of disappear. You went off the grid. And, and for most people, when they think of, you know, the dream career path, a lot of kids are thinking of that stunt performance career and being, you know, doubling Captain America like you did and being in all these great movies and films, making probably good money doing so. Um can you tell me a little bit more about what, what it was that you realized about, you know, yourself or that, that really made you go, this is not for me. Like, how did you, how did you know? And, and did you know what you wanted more or is it just that you wanted to, to reboot as well? And just, get yeah, some, I mean, like, it's really, it's a really <laughs> complex thing to try to like, cause you know, there was like stuff going on in like all these different areas of my life kind of simultaneously um that all were sort of like starting to point in this other direction mm. um but it took me a while to like like for it to click um mm -hmm. you know it's like it's like okay i'm moving this direction but i don't that, that doesn't feel right mm. but i don't but then there's all these sort of other directions that i'm <laughs> it's almost like inside, but life's nudging you in a way <laughs> yeah that but then it, but eventually they all those other forces had to like line up to like for me to see oh there's this other place to be like oh okay now i can switch over to this one mm. i mean i don't know that's really like abstract but it's, no it's i guess you press it yeah um, i feel like it's exactly. like a, a ship like you're jumping ship in a way and it's just like sometimes the ship's not built yet but when it's once it's built then it's like all right now that i've got a new vessel here that maybe is better yeah. suited to me yeah and and i did uh i i made like a a 10-year update video that i put on my youtube channel where i kind mm. of go more in detail on that if, if anybody wants to check that out yeah yeah um, that's um yeah the videos you've been putting out are absolutely incredible and this is one of the reasons why i was um so excited to reach out to you and one of the reasons i did reach out to you and um, because you put yourself you know back in the conversation at least publicly and yeah i would like to talk a little bit more okay so what brought you back out now because you went into the woodwork you rebooted your life what got you what did you learn and, and now you're back here and making these incredible videos and i can't recommend people go check them out enough especially if you want to dive into that full story but then beyond that these latest videos um it, you've been making some really amazing content and, you know you were telling me how you've studied anthropology and history and you've obviously been doing farming and things so can you dive into that a little bit with me and just how did that transition happen you know from moving back home to now creating new yeah. and very different I, I feel content. Bad there's only, I feel bad because there's only like a couple videos out yet. And it's like, it takes a lot of work to like put that all together. But um, but I, yeah, I, I do have a couple more like scripted, like that are queued up, but it's also springtime here. So like, you know, garden and farm is like, you know, in busy mode, but like, I'm going to definitely keep, keep putting that stuff out. But anyways, yeah, I mean, I think, 
uh, it, it, I didn't really like plan it really, I guess, in advance, but it was more just like, um, I think it started with the whole COVID shutdown. And during mm -hmm. that time, I started kind of like reconnecting with old friends, you know, calling up old parkour buddies and sort of catching up and that kind of thing. Um, I think as a lot of people did during the COVID shutdown. And, and then, um, you know, my buddy, Mark Turok with American Parkour, um, you know, he's been involved in World Chase Tag. So he invited me to come out to, uh, to referee at the at last year's competition in Ohio. So I got to go out there and like, you know, again, be like kind of thrown into the whole parkour community and like see all these old friends and like reconnect with them. And it was like such good energy and like just so much love and, and fun and joy was like there that I was like, wow, like, you know, mm -hmm. how did I, how did I like, how have I not been engaged in this for so long? You know, mm. um, I was so like focused in this other direction. And I think, you know, as, as I do some like journaling and stuff, I've noticed sort of a personal pattern where I tend to like always be focused on like the, the next greatest thing or like the new thing, the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, parkour, you know, parkour was like this brand new sport. So I was drawn to that. And then, you know, like permaculture, I guess you could say is like a the cutting edge of sustainable living maybe so that mm -hmm. i'm drawn to that you know even with like friendships and relationships and different skills you know i'm interested in one thing and then the next and the next um and so it's like this pattern but at but at the same time you know if you're always on to the next thing and you're not maintaining some of the really special like important things you've you've established and, and connections you've built in your life um then you know you stay kind of shallow so you know, I'm, I'm starting to have more of an intention to try to like, you know, sink my roots, like identify the things that really, the things and people that are like really important to me and like sink my roots more deeply, kind of like the, the pot example you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the flower pot that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. But before we started the recording, I talked about being a pot, you know, or repotting myself. And uh, yeah. I think that plants can be a really fun analogy for people in like their, their lives. And sometimes you repot and replant yourself and it takes a while to kind of grow, but then, yeah, you, then you, you, you root down, like you said. Um, so cool. So yeah, um, I'm trying to like, you know, reintegrate all these like different parts of myself now and be more of like a, I guess a whole, whole, wholer version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, so, I, yeah. I definitely think that that's a huge thing too, is like for me, uh, and I don't know if you resonate with this, but for me, it was like parkour was, and it doesn't have to be this way, obviously, but for me, it was very kind of like masculine. It was a place for me to explore some of my fiery qualities, you know, Sebastian might say, because he's got the whole elemental um, approach to what, how he sees training and, and his discipline, but masculine, fiery energy, like kind of getting out some of that anger honestly that I might have had when I was younger and just like really attacking and being aggressive and then I've sort of repotted in a more it's almost like the other way and I don't know if you feel this way is the same with permaculture but you know where I'm at now there's like a lot more feminine energy there's a lot more um, getting connected with the earth there's a lot more I'm trying to kind of find balance because I think you can get off balance essentially and that's when you kind of go back and look for balance in a different area maybe and then like where you're at, you bringing them back together and integrating everything. And I think that is sort of the path that I feel like I'm self, I'm also on. I don't know if that, you know, clicks with you too, but. Totally. Yeah. No, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, <laughs> dope. Um, and then, 
So yeah, then can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, that anxiety, that existential, like the, some of the problems, you know, essentially like your videos that you're making now, you, you know, one of the coolest things that I think you do is you synthesize all these huge issues and you talk about, you know, where we really are and you give us a really good story um, of that we can connect with about what's, what kind of things we're really up against as a society, as human beings. And you know, can you tell me a little bit or tell the audience and me like about your background and how you kind of came to understanding all these different topics? And um, and then we can really start to maybe go into those actual problems and the situation that we're sort of facing and, you know, why you are terrified in, in some ways or, you know, <laughs> why we all should be a little bit more, you know, maybe if if we all took a little bit more of the responsibility, you wouldn't have to be the only one out here terrified for us. <laughs> Or, you know, well, what I mean. Yeah, I mean, everyone's in kind of a different place on this stuff. But, um, you know, me, like one of my, um, I guess, the ways that I engage with the world is through like books and, and knowledge. And I'm very like, I love researching things. Like if, if, if I can't, like if there's like a puzzle or if there's like some question I have, I'll just go find like all the, the latest, like um, the books or, or research on that topic and just like, I might not read every word, but, you know, I'll at least like get a good sense of it to, to try to get, get an, a, a, a like big picture perspective on it. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, there's a lot of these um, global trends um, that are in a place where th that aren't sustainable. I mean, but that means that, you know, they can't continue. So, you know, I'll, I'll name a few, like there's climate change. I think every, hopefully most people are aware of it, um, you know, mass extinction, um, environmental toxification, resource depletion, there's fresh water scarcity, you know, all these, all these like um, things are, are on this sort of trajectory or trend that, you know, somewhere in the next, you know, 30 to 50 years, they're going to, they can't, they can't continue. They're going to hit some sort of limit or, or they, the trend has to change or change direction or something has to happen. Um, and so we can either, you know, figure out how to navigate that, like, um, intentionally and, and hopefully try to avoid like a lot of chaos and pain um, or we can just like wait for it to just hit hit society as it's already starting to do um, but I guess it, it'll help to kind of like uh, maybe focus in on like one particular sure. um, um, issue so like you know a big one especially with agriculture and farming is topsoil depletion so, you know, topsoil is the thin layer of like really the black dirt that's on top of the surface that's uh, full of like nutrients and organic matter. And that's required to grow like 95% of the food that we eat. Um, and yet, you know, the trend is that today, one fifth of the earth's soils are degraded. And that's that includes more than half of all agricultural land. And like, um, you know, according to the UN, 90% of the world's farmland could be degraded by 2050 if we don't dramatically change how we manage like the land and the soil. So, you know, as I studied the world and in, in learned about things like this, um, you know, it just made me, as well as the other ones that I mentioned and just seeing kind of where they're all headed, mm -hmm. it just kind of gave me this overall sense of like existential dread and <laughs> anxiety. And I was just, yeah, terrified. And, you know, there's also a sense of like overwhelm because there's, it's just so much and it's so like, deeply integrated into our entire society um so there's also guilt built into that mm. as well and feeling kind of guilty for being complicit in 
in the systems, um, you know, industrial systems of that are creating these problems. Um, and, and at that time, this was about 10 years ago, and I, I kind of felt fairly alone um, because at, at least these things, I think, weren't quite as um, out in the open as they are now. Fortunately, people are becoming more aware of a lot of this stuff. Um, but back then, you know, it felt very alone to be like dealing with this kind of very heavy stuff when most other people, at least in my life, were, you know, not very aware or, or didn't care or whatnot. So, um, but what helped was, you know, doing my research and finding groups of people that were aware and were like working on solutions and, and at least adaptations to, to some of these things. Although it's one of those rabbit holes that you can just like go deeper and deeper and mm-hmm. you find that every, almost every solution has like some trade-off or unintended consequence. So it gets really complex really fast. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I guess one of like the, the interesting pieces of the puzzle that I started learning about were about how we have these common cultural myths or narratives that kind of play into how we interpret and respond to these like global scale, slow motion crises. Hmm. So, you know, I, I found um, that to be a really interesting kind of area to delve into. Yeah, no, I think this is great. And I think this is one place that we can tie in a little bit to help the the listener who's, you know, this is a lot of information to take in. And I feel like, you know, I'm, just starting to absorb some of it because it is hard to to connect the dots sometimes especially you know you know these these problems but when you start to see how they all link together and uh you know especially the topsoil is one that i just learned about and that was one of the, ori- the original reason i reached out to you is because i don't know if you're aware of a uh, sad guru he's the one dude that i've been following for quite some time now uh he's like this indian mystic kind of guy but he's his big mission right now is topsoil and save soil mm-hmm. and talking about how and there's a great film kiss the ground i don't know if you've seen that on netflix yeah I, explains, i'm aware of it i need to watch it but i think i already kind of know a lot of the. yeah you probably don't need that film but for anyone like me you know that's a good like introduction to it and yeah. um what the hell is going on here so yeah what i was saying is basically you know the the soil was one of the reasons i originally reached out to you and that's one of the biggest issues right now and I think it's good to maybe tie this in because the sustainability is so, so it's so uh, it's right there. It's like in the parkour journey as well. And like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but you know, you can, you can also push your body with these myths that you're about to get into. And, you know, you, you can, you, you really test these myths as a parkour athlete. Sometimes, you know, how far can you push yourself? Is it like perpetual progress? I think we all got that in our heads as little kids, you know, maybe if I just keep going, I'll just be like Goku or whatever, you know, people get inspired and they think they can actually become superhuman and eventually they find some limits. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about parkour is you can really find some real limits for yourself and help get a real deeper understanding of what it's like to be alive. And, um, and instead of, you know, and you can do it just the same way as we're doing it, you can get injured because you just didn't pay attention or you can really start listening and guiding yourself more intentionally. So, can you talk about that and how these myths show up, um, not just in our, well, I talked about it a little bit in our training already, but just how these myths are showing up in, in the world, the society, the modern culture we have today. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that metaphor of like your training and finding your limits, you know, mm. and is a metaphor for like society and kind of expanding <laughs> and then finding, hitting, hitting these limits, you know, yeah. and then maybe during ourselves in the process, but, um, but yeah. So like, you know, for example, 
like when you when a person or when you encounter one of these like existential type of facts like like topsoil depletion one that i shared you know about 90 percent of farmland being degraded and how our food totally depends on that um you know you might notice your mind reacting by fitting it into like, like a common narrative about the world mm. or a story and so like some of the most common ones you know one of the most common ones is like the myth of perpetual progress so this is one where you just have faith that new technologies and human ingenuity and innovation will always we can always invent our way out of the, the mess and the problem so you know and it won't really affect our everyday lives except in minor ways maybe driving electric cars and having smart thermostats you know but you know, on the topic of soil and agriculture, you know, it could be looking at things like robot drones and AI software and genetic modified crops and stuff to solve, you know, these problems like soil depletion. So, you know, the the over the underwriting assumption is that the, the progress of civilization will like continue fairly unimpeded despite these problems and these limits, mm -hmm. you know, and generally it's coming from a framework of looking just at the last 50 to 100 years of kind of like an upward trajectory in general and like technological complexity and population and, and all that stuff, access to resources. Um, and, but then another common one, another common one of these narratives that people might start thinking about when they're confronted with like existential facts and sort of trends is more like the idea that humans are a parasite on the planet and that we're already doomed. And so we might as well just say, screw it and just party and, you know, say, and when we're gone, just good riddance to humans because we're, we're kind of shitty. So that's like another kind of story that sometimes people can respond with. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting to me that that both these narratives kind of relieve us from taking meaningful action ourselves. They're, they, so they can kind of sometimes act as like a mechanism for denial or avoidance. Um, and I know for some people, this, this narrative story stuff like will click and others, it just sounds like a bunch of made up stuff. But um, just to give a little bit of context and zoom out, you know, our, our ancestors have been telling stories for hundreds of years, or sorry, hundreds of thousands of years, very <laughs> long time, long before writing. And so it, what, stories weren't just for entertainment, you know, they were the, the way that cultural knowledge and wisdom was passed down for a very long time, way, way longer than, you know, writing and, and podcasts. <laughs> yeah. And so like story is a very core way that, that we make sense of the world and they help orient us by explaining, you know, where we came from and where we're going and why. And, um, and the simplest story is just from point A to point B, which I think you might be familiar with. <laughs> but I love yeah, that, but yeah. anyways, this, this is, uh, you know, so, but this, these stories, they don't just apply on the global scale. We also have like personal scale stories and narratives that, that we sometimes are living unconsciously. So, one example would be, you know, when I was doing all these parkour stunt jobs and Ninja Warrior competitions, um, I didn't realize it, but I was unconsciously trying to follow this narrative of personal success and achievement in order to prove my self-worth, you know, to myself and to the world through these, through, through this external, like, representations of success. And this is a very, like, American narrative, you know, and which is very obsessed with, like, the whole rags to riches story or the exceptional individual who overcomes all these challenges to achieve something extraordinary, you know, but in these, these sort of personal stories, they're not just coming from us internally, but they can also be kind of like projected on us from the outside. So again, for instance, when I was really active with Ninja Warrior um, and I had some early success um, at that time, it was on the channel G4 and they kind of like built up my, the story of my character and like called me the legend and stuff like that. <laughs> 
And, uh, and of course, you know, that, that plays up the drama for TV, but it's also easy to kind of internalize some of these stories as well. And, and that can create stress. So, you know, I guess another component was some of the Ninja Warrior fans would always be contacting me and, you know, be really emotionally invested in, in this story that, mm. that I was like unconsciously kind of living into. And, uh, and, and, you know, and they still do, but it doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. And I know their intentions are good. Um, but, you know, when I was younger, I'd say I kind of let that stuff get inside me more and get this feeling like I wasn't living up to the expectations or somehow my self-worth was less because I didn't, uh, you know, push myself to like beat Mount Midoriyama or beat Ninja <laughs> or, or whatever, you know? So, so anyways, these stories, you know, these stories kind of like can, can really influence us in an unconscious way. So, so anyways, going back to the big picture, the more I studied things like soil and agriculture and anthropology, the more I felt like these common narrative responses, like the myth of progress and, you know, humans as a parasite are really inadequate to convey the reality and the nuance um, to really help us, like help guide us to a better future. Absolutely. Um, I think that's really interesting because, you know, it sounds like and I don't know you, if you agree, do you feel like we do need a story? Because there is like an argument about, well, do we need a story? Like how, that's how we understand things. It seems to be how we can orient ourselves. And, and yet a story is almost always going to be a little bit off the mark, but we at least need an update, you know, if we're going to head in a better and brighter direction. And, you know, certainly our generation is faced now with that task, it seems like, of rewriting the the current narrative or the modern narrative to to have a healthier relationship with the earth and maybe with ourselves and who who knows what else but um i wanted to jump into the, the our relationship in particular with soil because i think one of the things that i learned through that kiss the ground film and some of the stuff i've been learning at where i work now with the human universal health institute is how much this soil stuff really matters you know some people think like it's oh it's the earth you know here's another myth is like, oh, nature's that, but humans are this, or like, you know, they don't see themselves as part of nature or part of it, or mm -hmm. that it's all connected. And mm -hmm. what, what I've come to understand, and you let me know if I'm onto anything or if I'm maybe speaking over my pay grade here, but- I'm not the expert either here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, yeah, that's the thing. None of it, we're not scientists, like, but that's, all, that's another thing that I feel like also, that's another myth, honestly, that I feel like I've started to grapple with a little bit is, is it really, you know, we think of like a, a scientist, again, we, we kind of export our responsibility, we export our um, mm -hmm. understanding to some other ex, some guy, some girl, someone who knows all this stuff, someone's going to figure it out. And that's kind of that perpetual progress, like they'll, and on it, honestly, what I've learned about scientific studies, like often, it's very narrow that anyone can, you know, become like, if they're going to advance new ground in the scientific domain, often, they're going to be super focused in one specific area. So they actually might not have a broad understanding of it. And they, you know, just as your gastroenterologist might not talk to your dermatologist, to your um, whatever, your <laughs> octo or your ocular surgeon or whatever, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. all these people, they're very specialized, but <clears throat> sometimes you do need somebody who maybe doesn't have the specific studying of you know one domain but they can synthesize and i think that's one thing that you do really well and others um <clears throat> but yeah all that to say one of the things yeah. i've learned is uh is like the soil you know the soil health if the soil is lacking in nutrients 
and we, you know, we just spray pesticides or we do other things to kind of like pump up our plants to make them look like they're growing really well. But what we've learned now is that they don't actually contain the same kinds of nutrient content. And often with the spraying, they contain all kinds of toxic things that are going to make your body actually feel worse. But even if, um, you know, we're trying to grow it organically, but we don't have good topsoil, what we learn about, you know, lacking diversity in the organisms in the soil is that you lack diversity in the organisms in your gut. And mm -hmm. all these things basically contribute to a, actually a less, less uh, structurally sound, you could say, or like a more fragile organism. You know, if we're, if we're not getting our nutrients, basically we become like less of ourselves actually through the process of eating poorer quality food. And, you know, we don't know exactly how thin that is right now, but we could be on really thin ice, you know, in terms of like, eventually yeah, we got cut off and I was saying how, you know, the soil, basically my point was the soil health directly affects your health. Uh, you know, it's, it's just that simple and your biology is made up of these things. And we need to have the stronger our soil is the stronger actually our human bodies can become, you know, because of the food that's grown in them is providing us with better content. And that's where I was at, but you on it, you had a point quickly to address um, how, you know, we talked about oh, what, yeah. what, what the limits, <laughs> well, some of the limits of scientific studies and, and being a scientist can, can show up as. Yeah, just just your comment about you know the outsourcing our our uh, ex like to to the experts or something like that. Mm. Um, you know, for the way I look at it is like you know the the experts within a specific field, whether it's physics or biology or soil science, you know they're good at knowing what is because um, they're the experts. That's what they study, but that doesn't tell us what it means or necessarily what to do about it. It can certainly have implications about that stuff, but you know I think to answer those sort of like bigger picture perspective questions is what requires, you know, kind of an ed educated public and educated citizenry to kind of hash that all out and figure out what's what, what to do about it all, but still being, um, you know, grounded in that scientific research. Um, so there's sort of a, a balanced and relationship there, but I guess to come to the soil topic. Mm. Um, yeah. What, so <clears throat> first of all, there's, well, let's see. So like, you know, just to, again, give some perspective. So, so large scale, there's a huge shift in how um, many societies produce their food around 12,000 years ago, when it, there was a shift, a general shift towards large scale grain agriculture, away mm. from, you know, what, what we typically call hunter gatherer, like societies, um, more nomadic cultures. Now, it's, it's more complicated than that. Obviously, there's a lot of like regional variety, you know, this wasn't just a simple story. And there's always like exceptions and caveats to these generalizations. But generally speaking, you know, um, hunter gatherer cultures also, they, they did actually practice some forms of like seed saving and plant, plant propagation, and even had some small gardens, um, cer certain cultures of, of them did. Um, but it wasn't their primary means of feeding themselves, it was just supplemental. Um, but this shift, this Neolithic revolution that, that started around 12,000 years ago um, involved, you know, really scaling up that whole grain agriculture um, where, you know, large areas of land were being cleared, like clear cut forests, ripping out the stumps, tilling the land to plant, you know, huge areas of like one specific crop. And, you know, common ones were like wheat and millet and barley at that time. And so this was like the, the advent of more settled um, societies that started to really grow and grow. Um, but, you know, I guess 
let's see. So those, so earlier forms of horticulture, because they were more integrated with functional healthy ecosystems, they were also more sustainable in general. Um, and, you know, there's a, a really interesting, some new research that's come out that shows that the, some of the most biologically diverse areas on the planet, like the Amazon basin in South America, are actually the result of generations of forest management by the indigenous cultures there. So, you know, it's not, it's more complex than just this story of kind of like uh, wild humans living in like untamed, pristine wilderness that, that might be uh, sometimes mm. drawn. Yeah, that, that, because that starts to feed into, or at least it makes the case, it has, it, it points evidence and supports that other story of, you know, if we're not parasites on the earth, what are we? Maybe we are some kind of shepherd or steward for the planet, um, you know, that some people definitely, you know, resonate with that I've heard, uh, but anyhow. Yep, yep, it's more complicated, yeah, so it's it's more complicated, so, um, so yeah, but anyways, the societies that, that focus more on these grains, you know, they, again, were depending on clearing large areas, but the, the tricky thing about tilling the soil, um, tilling or plowing, is that it, it creates a short-term boost in fertility, because you know you're killing all the vegetation and the organisms in the soil. So as they're breaking down, they're releasing all their nutrients so that your crop plants can take those up. So it creates a short-term boost in fertility, which you know will seem like a good thing, but over the long term, you're actually depleting the fertility of the soil, um, mm -hmm. both due to nutrient leaching from the rainwater, but also erosion and from rain and wind kind of carrying the topsoil away. So this form of agriculture that was shifted to by as we shifted to, or certain cultures shifted towards the settled grain, large-scale agriculture, um, it tends to deplete the topsoil uh, over time and productivity declines, but it does it on a fairly slow time scale so that, you know, it's not always perceived by those cultures. They can't quite see where, what's happening, mm -hmm. um, especially because normally their populations are growing at the same time. And it takes a long time for natural processes to generate topsoil. It can take around 500 years for like a natural forest to generate one inch of topsoil. Um, but the, what's cool though, is that there's certain uh, new regenerative agriculture techniques um, that have made it possible to generate one inch of topsoil in just a few years. So yeah, I, I was just saying that, you know, through some regenerative agriculture techniques, topsoil can be built at a rate like a hundred times faster than natural processes, which is pretty astounding. Yeah. And so that has, okay. you know, implication. It also has implications for for sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere. But that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another big one, though. For that's a big point in that that kiss the ground film is you know there's a, there's places there's solutions available to us already, and that actually make makes us so much more like capable than we really thought if we start to work with nature instead of just maybe you know if you're really thinking about only technology as like a computers and electronics and stuff then you start to lose the the magnificent technology that is just life itself or you know the yeah. the soil there and i think that's a really good analogy you know another place that that shows up where it's kind of like it sneaks up on you the the solution eventually becomes like a chronic issue is you know it, and it's very similar, actually, in the terms of antibiotics, what I've learned with um, mm -hmm. working in, you know, in medicine here a little bit is antibiotics can be, a, you know, a lifesaver for many people. And especially when they were invented, it's like, wow, how many lives must they have saved? 
And yeah. yet, if you go through a lot of courses of antibiotics, you destroy your gut microbiome to the point where you get a whole host of other diseases and issues that arise. And then there might be a need for, you know, reintroducing a, that, that question of like, okay, what is the real solution here that we, we want to, to address, you know, issues where there's infections in the gut or infections of bacteria. And that's, you know, a separate conversation, but it, it's just um, important to remind ourselves, I guess, you know, what we're seeing here is it's not always just like a bandaid or some solutions are a bandaid solution, or they might even serve us for, decades before we realize that there's much better things that we need or new issues that we need to solve. Yep. Yep. Definitely. But you know, one, maybe one clue, um, is when a solution has multiple kind of compounding, um, benefits and mm -hmm. it kind of creates sort of a, like an up, upward trajectory spiral, like a positive, well, a positive yeah. feedback loop. The terminology is not quite accurate, but you know, yeah. a feedback loop that moves us in a positive direction on many different in many different ways and realms yeah yeah exactly like um yeah so if we can do what the earth can do in 500 years and just five you know that's uh or a couple of years that's amazing you know now what, yeah, and the food, the food's healthier that? too through like yeah. the regenerative agriculture and the like food's more healthier more nutrient dense and the ecosystem's healthier when you use those techniques because you're doing more diverse agriculture rather than like one single crop type thing but yeah. But we're jumping ahead a little bit. <laughs> we're jumping ahead, yeah. But let's let's start getting into that because you you have um, some thoughts on how you know history can tell us and contextualize our understanding of like where we're at right now and and also you know how this kind of plays into not just agriculture but how our attitude plays into the how we you know you you, you talked about in our in our pre discussion a little bit about how it kind of becomes like a conquest when when we apply um, a dependency on these certain, these older, or these maybe needing updated strategies, can you, mm -hmm. can you talk about it? Cause I actually, this is your, your idea and it's great. It's brilliant. I just can't articulate it the same way here. Oh, it's not my idea. <laughs> I, I pulled it from some book true. or something. But anyways. <laughs> it's, it's an idea that you found. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, like the, the general idea. So like it, you know, okay. So we've established the idea that you know, tillage, large-scale tillage, grain agriculture, which is, you know, feeds most people on the planet right now, but also way back thousands of years ago, it's just been the main, the mainstream pattern. Um, you know, it, because it depletes the soil and the land over time, it requires to, for the society to sustain itself using those unsustainable methods, it requires them to continue to have to expand and expand and expand into new more, you know, still fertile territories in order to keep producing food for its population. Mm. And of course, you know, these other territories weren't always vacant or aren't always vacant. There's existing inhabitants. And so off, too often those, those existing inhabitants have to be either conquered or assimilated to continue the expansion of these unsustainable cultures. You know, some examples would be like the ancient Roman Empire, the ancient Egyptians, and so on. So, you know, they, th those unsustainable uh, cultures that depend on unsustainable forms of agriculture have to develop the skills and tools of conquest, as well as like the cultural values and the stories that justify that. Um, mm. So it, like the doctrine of discovery is something you can look up, which came out of the Catholic church and like justified a lot of the expansion into the new, new world, into the Americas and so forth, the new world. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, 
as the, the expansion in conquest is part of the survival strategy of unsustainable cultures because they keep depleting their, their, their land base that they started mm. on. So, you know, and this kind of ties in, I think a little bit, or it could tie into the, that pattern I identified in myself, how, you know, I'm always chasing after like the next new thing, the next new thing, the, pat- the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, maybe that's like a, a personality pattern that, uh, that I unconsciously sort of inherited from the colonial culture that, you know, we've sort of emerged from, but, but yeah, so all too often, you know, those, those cultures that are being conquered are tend, tend to be the ones who are living more sustainably because they don't need, have the need to focus as many of their resources on warfare. So, you know, and there's other factors as well, like, like people that are doing the, the settled agriculture tend to live in closer proximity to their livestock, which tends to breed more diseases and epidemics. And of course, you know, then when, when they encounter, you know, those who aren't living, who are living more nomadically, you know, those diseases can, can of course, kill off huge parts of that population who might be living more sustainably. So this just, you know, creates another pattern of why, you know, unsustainable cultures have sort of come to dominate the globe. So, you know, so, and then where we're at now is, is they basically dominated pretty much all corners of the globe. And, you know, like I said, unsustainable forms of agriculture are now the mainstream um, way of, of doing agriculture. Um, and and that's, this process has just been accelerated with the invention of massive fossil fuel powered machines for cultivation. Um, but again, the good news is that we can actually restore the soils and increase biological diversity, wildlife habitat, and all the rest while producing nutrient dense and chemical free food using some of these regenerative agriculture techniques. Um, but the key is to, like you said, work with nature, you know, not be, not be just decimating everything and, and expanding <laughs> like that yeah no i love that so yeah i think what you're you know it's just like when we talk about with parkour training because that's always a great analogy for for you and i probably but also the audience here it's just you know you got to work with your body when you do find that limit where you break your ankle or you sprain it hopefully maybe not break it or maybe not either you just you know get a little bit of a bruise on your foot whatever you have you understand that okay you got to work with your biology we got to work with our you know fellow biology in um the earth and the soil here and what do you see you know like can you give us some examples about what nature like demonstrates to us um when we look at it and we look to to see with what's there to model with yeah yeah i mean i guess one example you know when you observe natural systems natural ecosystems is that each element in the system performs multiple different functions at the same time. So, you know, for let's say an oak tree, um, besides just propagating itself, it also helps to shade the soil, which helps keep soil cooler and prevent, you know, reduce evaporation. Now trees also transpire water, you know, from the soil up into the air and help with cloud formation. Um, They also provide shelter and food for squirrels and many other species, as well as oxygen that we breathe. So, you know, we can, when we're designing our own system, we can try to stack many functions into each element or each action that we take, um, you know, to, to more so mimic and model how natural ecosystems work. So um, an example, I guess, from, from my farm here is when I raise pigs, I manage them in a way where I move, I move them around the pasture um, mm-hmm. in a way that actually builds the soil health and fertility over time, which is also banking, you know, carbon in the soil. 
Um, and then I feed them expired produce from the grocery store. So that's helping to divert a waste stream away from the landfill. Um, plus, I don't know if you know this, pigs are made of pork. So <laughs> that's kind of another benefit or function. Um, so yeah, so they're serving multiple functions on my farm, just like uh, oak tree does in a forest. And honestly, I think parkour is kind of like this too. Um, you know, it, it serves multiple different needs for us. You know, it, it's like a fun way to stay in shape. Plus, it's a great way to like connect with socially with get some social bonding time with friends. Mm -hmm. um, it provides a sense of community. You know, it's a, it's a creative outlet for self-expression and play. So, you know, I think so parkour is very like stacking functions too. And I think that might be one of the reasons why it's so easy to love parkour because it nourishes us in so many ways. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I just had a discussion with Rafe who, again, I'm sure you, you know, Rafe Kelly, yeah. at least, yeah. in, you know, through the years. And, you know, we talked about how parkour is that juicy. Um, it's one of the juicier things you can do because it has all those stacking functions that you're talking about. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's amazing. Uh, Let's see here. And, it's, and it's not energy intensive. It doesn't, you know, it Nothing doesn't go to waste, right? Yeah. You're just, yeah, it's very like simple, just shoes just in your body and, you know, an environment. Yeah. So, I mean, we're all like about that. efficiency, right? A to B. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I love how, you know, there's just no waste too. You, you think about, you know, this is one of the stories. And I think one of the reasons this is a complete like armchair psychologist thing going on here, I'm about to say, but, you know, you see movies like, fern gully and avatar and some of these things like they tell this story to a degree of of us you know the the aggressive the overly capitalist maybe overly materialistic um those are kind of like it's not quite what i'm touching on but the more industrious culture kind of butting up against a more harmonious net natural um culture or species and, you know, in the process, learning that, you know, there's actually a, a more balanced way to live there. And uh, I just love that because I think, you know, we, we talk about, you know, Native American cultures and people that were more in harmony with the earth. And it's just so simple. It's just like weirdly in front of us. And it's just been there the whole time. Um, just like so many things that you end up realizing through life. You know, it's just like, no, we, we actually can use the feces from these animals to actually make the the land healthier and we can use our scraps to make the pigs healthier and we can make you like it's all useful if you just kind of like know where to put it so i just love how um simple it is like you're saying i guess but mm -hmm. i'm sure it's not it's, totally simple it's simple and it's point. complex you know yeah. there's <laughs> like why you know why okay so we have some there's some great examples of how we can you know restore um, ecosystems integrated lands at a, at a very large scale and and also provide like a, a living in a way of healthy food for many many people but you know why why aren't we going in that direction why why isn't that mm. the mainstream you know what what are the obstacles to that um and i you know i don't necessarily have all the answers um but i guess i could share i, I could i could do some armchair yeah do some armchair really <laughs> um yeah i mean i think a big part of it like when you think about so re more regenerative forms of agriculture it requires more hands-on care and attention i mean you think about a small farm or like a your local farm you know it's less about these giant machines you know um 
modern industrial agriculture where they're growing corn and soybeans, it's, it depends on these fossil fuel powered, like GPS guided combines on thousand acre farms. And mm -hmm. that's, that requires so much fewer human contact with the land, which also means, you know, you're not looking and observing and seeing what's happening to the ecosystem. Not that there really is much of an ecosystem on those types of farms, but, <laughs> you know, back in the year 1900, before, before this big advent of fossil fuels and sort of um, industrial, the industrial farming kind of got going, something like 50% of the U.S. population was involved in agriculture in some form or another. But today it's just, a, it's just around 1.3% of people that are engaged in farming and really growing the food for everybody else. So, you know, this has made, this has been made possible largely thanks to fossil fuels, which are basically the sun's energy stored up over millions and millions of years that's been distilled down and concentrated into these highly concentrated forms like oil and gas and coal. And, you know, it takes something like 10 calories of fossil fuel energy to produce one calorie of food energy, you know, using these, these modern agricultural methods. But we're burning through these energy reserves very quickly. And renewables are also kind of problematic to, to operate at that scale that would be required to transition the whole agricultural sector to renewable energy without adding more human labor into the mix. So, you know, from what, what I'm, my interpretation is that the cost of industrial produced food will continue to climb as the energy and topsoil and fresh water and other resources that it depends on become more scarce and depleted because it's unsustainable. So this means that we need more people in farming as the unsustainable methods start to fail more. And we, we need to do this either by choice or necessity. We need to move towards regenerative and sustainable forms of agriculture. So, you know, I'm personally a big fan of, of that personal connection. You know, it's, I guess it goes back to the old man versus machine kind of trope of like, you know, which is better, man versus machine. But when it comes to working with the land, it's something that I, I think there's something kind of that can get lost in translation when you're translating the health of the land into metrics like, oh, it's this much topsoil mm -hmm. or it's this much carbon in the soil or it's this many plant species per square foot. You know, when you kind of reduce things into these numbers and quantified numbers and then just look at them, you know, on a sheet of paper or a spreadsheet, very different than being out there and having that personal connection. So, you know, I'm a big fan of that, of course. So, you know, so why aren't more, again, getting back to that question, why aren't mm. more people getting into regenerative farming? Why aren't we transitioning more to that, to that method? So the economics of agriculture are also really messed up, um, where it's, it's hard to be profitable in, in places like the U.S., unless you're near like a wealthy enclave of people who are willing to pay a premium for, the, for these mm. like regenerative locally grown foods. Um, so this is just another expression of like this whole other issue of the vast inequality present in modern society. So, you know, the, these kind of issues are kind of intertwined in a way. Um, and it's really complex and it's hard to know, you know, what's, what comes first, what's the, you know. Um, but I think in general, what's clear to me is like, I think we need to engage, not just as good ethical consumers, but also as informed citizens in terms of like policy and economic decisions that incentivize you know, one form of agriculture over another, because, you know, right now, large scale ag is heavily subsidized by the US government. Yeah, that's so, one of the craziest things is just when you realize like, well, yeah, why aren't we doing it? And it's like, well, yeah, we're subsidizing the, the, the issue in a way we've like, we've 
we've over leveraged ourselves, or we've over we're so committed we're over committed you know again with parkour you can over commit to something and you know it's it's might be time to eject and pull out and do something different but you you commit anyways because you gotta do it or whatever i don't know it's that's not quite the same mentality but it is like there's so many juicy parkour analogies because i think again like one of the you know when you talk about that that spike um in where we are in terms of like our ability to to use these fossil fuels, for example. It's like, we're in that tiny window where it's, and we could have stretched it out if we'd been conscious of this earlier maybe, but mm-hmm. it's like that peak window that you know people talk about as athletes. It's like, okay, there is a certain time when maybe you would be able to do some destructive, unsustainable training and your body will hold up for a number of months or years. But then eventually, I think I might be feeling you... that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. You're gonna you're gonna have to come back down to earth ultimately, and come back and engage again with the planet. You know, I think there's like um, there's so many sort of stories that are kind of parallel to that, and in, in like what you're talking about with uh, you know just getting in touch with things in the same way that this technology puts us at a distance and puts us you know takes us out of it and takes us away from from nature it's weird that we it's not weird but it is it's just like it's strange to me it's like what is and i wondered i want to know what the myth operating underneath that is sometimes and i think it might be that you know we for me it was i wanted to like solve life you know in a way i think that's like what like the idea that you can just solve it and like you can eventually figure it all out and it'll be done and you you made you made it somehow and i think that's like trying to get away from it and, and shirk your your connection and responsibility with life is why we try to master nature you know or you know and it becomes a kind of an oppressive sort of thing eventually because we are i don't know i don't know how to i'll have to think about that one some more but i think you know right what i mean roughly which is like we're trying to what's the word dominate you know i guess and uh yeah. but anyhow anyhow um there's some so there's great things that it could, that can do and it provided us with the ability to talk over the internet even though it's barely worked today but you know ultimately i would much rather have you here in person or be here in person i think it's like you know it's always a better connection when you have and it's hard to, to know what that is you know maybe eventually the there'll be studies and things that make that clear you know in in numbers and black and white for people but everybody can feel it right we can all feel it exactly feel the difference between (laughs) talking to someone in person then you can you're getting the same roughly the same visual and auditory like information stream but like there's obviously way more going on when you're communicating (laughs) with someone in person yeah no i think it's interesting just to think about like what social media is doing in terms of the social um nutrients that we need you know we talked you talked about how that social connection is so it's one of the most powerful things about parkour you know because we all used to meet up at jams and meet up at international gatherings and things like that more often and that's where we feel it and part of you know the beauty of you know it's, it's always a double-edged sword but it's like we we've made so many connections across these international boundaries that now we have sort of these many relationships that sort of aren't sustained except over social media, except over the internet. And the nutrients we get back from some of those internet connections are sometimes, you know, in my experience, they're just not quite as nutrient dense. (laughs) 
as the real world connection. But anyhow, that's a separate. But I like your issue. podcast. You're, you, you know, I have definitely got, <laughs> felt like I'm getting getting some of the good, the good parkour <laughs> nutrient. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, that's one of the things that. Oh, well, I really appreciate you listening, man. That's amazing to hear. And I'm really glad because that is the, like one of the few things that I feel like this podcast can do is it can help everyone reconnect with that person a little bit deeper than just an Instagram post, you know, or, you know, whatever you can write on Twitter, etc. But back to back to it. So, um, you know, you've talked about some of those solutions already, but is there any other ones that you want to touch on here? I'm just like, what are the, what are the things that you recommend people can do? You know, they can vote kind of like with their choices in the, you know, the market in terms of where they spend their money and what the things they can support. And can you dive a little deeper on like some of those, those things that are right. What do we do? And, yeah. Well, what do we do? You know, what do what I do? do? You know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Levi, tell us what to do, man. I don't be know. my robot, like, be my combine in the field and, and solve I my wish life. I, knew. You, please. I wish I had the answers. Um, you know, I don't know what you should do. You know, everyone needs to find their own path, but I guess from my vantage point, I've got some thoughts that mm. are things that I've found, you know, one of my first things I always try to start with is like, just remembering to appreciate like all the big and small things that I have to be grateful for in my life and like in the world there's so much beauty and we you know I think most people probably listening to this have all their needs met the basic needs met for the most part um you know there might be some difficulty or struggle to do that but you know we still have a lot to be grateful for so that's a good place to start um because I think that appreciation and that kind of love is what what can motivate us to then want to protect and defend what what we care about right and you know as well as like the people in our life and everything um and you know i guess thinking about kind of where we're at as a as a generation because you know i think many of us in the parkour world are, are fairly in a similar age range obviously there's like it goes younger but you know a lot of us i think we're, we're both in our 30s here yep. and you know part of getting older is taking on more responsibilities. And so for some people, that means like raising a kid. For some, it's starting a business and running a business. For others, it's buying and maintaining a house. So I think that part of the responsibilities of each generation as it matures is to educate itself about the systems that it depends on, you know, energy, agriculture, biology, governance, economics, and so on. Because pretty soon we're going to be in charge of running our generation, I mean, is going to be in charge of running those systems. You know, this is the world we're inheriting in all its fucked up beauty and mystery <laughs> and chaos. So, you know, I think that's that's like a responsibility that that we kind of need to step up to. So, you know, a, a good place to start is like getting involved in local politics. Um, you know, I go to my town hall meetings here. And, uh, and everyone on the township board meeting, almost everyone is like 60 or older. And it's kind of similar if you look at the federal government in the US, right? It's like mostly really old people and, and older Americans are outvoting younger Americans by a wider and wider margin. Um, so, you know, and, and I know it's, it's easy to be cynical about uh, change at the national scale. And actually there's, there's even research to back that up because um, I think there's one from 2015, a Princeton study that showed that, um, public opinion has like a near zero impact on national policy. Um, whereas like the opinion of the wealthiest 10% has a very significant influence. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have, we have a problem here of um, large lobbyists, you know, large 
corporations and industries basically using their money to influence policy in a way that isn't for the greatest good. It's just for the greatest profit, essentially. So, you know, if I was to think about like a top priority in terms of at least, at, you know, in the um, realm of, of politics and, and governance is to, to, you know, end the corruption in, in terms so that we can actually try to govern ourselves again. And I think that has, that's not as applicable at the local and grassroots scale, be, that kind of corruption, because, you know, you can actually build a personal relationship with your representatives at these smaller scales. So mm. it, it's a good place to start. And then you can like even run for office, although that's not for everybody. <laughs> uh, but, you know, besides the governance side of things, um, you know, d- trying to build a little bit of a personal relationship with the land around you and the plants and stuff, learning how to identify some of the different species, you know, even try planting something, you know, plant some native species, plant some veggies, observe the natural patterns, see what happens, and then apply those lessons in your life. Um, another thing would be like building mutually beneficial relationships with your neighbors, just like a tree or a plant does. Um, so this could look like sharing yard tools or, you know, helping watch their animals when they're away or, or planting some trees together in your yards, you know, with like with parkour training, you know, I think when you start to get into this, you just start to discover many more unexpected benefits, uh, when you collaborate with your local community of humans and plants and animals and the rest of the whole crew. So, and I guess in terms of like narratives and stories, mm. I've personally found that that writing in a journal is really helpful, is a great way to kind of deconstruct some of the unconscious narratives that I inherited from our culture and begin to write new stories that are a better fit for who I am and a better fit for reality and for the world. You know, both our individual stories as well as like you know, the story of the world that, that as we perceive it. Um, so I think, you know, we can discover a lot of power in taking ownership as the authors of our own story, um, you know, as we take on the responsibilities of inheriting this world. Powerfully put. I think that's a great, great um, advice or, or just something to digest for all of us, especially as we enter those mid thirties and, and later and beyond, you know, a lot of these I think amazing, talented minds and practitioners, you know, we see, I think one of the cool things, and, you know, again, one of the reasons why I love doing the podcast is that we get to see, you know, a brilliant mover and how you approach movement evolve into how you're approaching these other bigger questions and, um, and addressing, you know, your own maturation. So love what you're doing, man. And um, I think that's great. I think that's a really powerful message because it is pertinent or excuse me, it is a, that's the word. I don't know, but it's, it's something that's right there, you know, in, in my life and I see it everywhere. And I think it's, um, it's something that has been scary for a lot of us to, to really step into that role, but it gets easier. Just take a, you know, baby step, baby steps. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So thank you for that. Um, I did have some quick bonus questions that are really just focused on parkour since we have talked about some of the big stuff. I know that there's going to be some people that want to just hear some really um, parkour specific kind of things. So I just wanted to curiously ask, you know, because, you know, you have monitored now you're getting back into um, some of the parkour culture in in a way that maybe you weren't as in touch with. What differences, you know, have you noticed from when you first were pioneering parkour to now? And or what are the same things? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think what's what's interesting, I guess one tra change is like, you know, I guess when I was in the early days, um, there was sort of this divide of like parkour and free running and sort of like <laughs> a, a sort, of, sort of false dichotomy there. Um, and a little bit of fun internet dialogue or <laughs> debate about that, um, hashing out the language. And I, I think it's mostly past that now, which is nice. And now there's like, um, I see it sort of um, fragmenting, but in a good way into like different sort of subcultures within parkour. You know, there's like more the natural movement side, there's more like the competition side. Um, there's like, you know, the world chase tag side. I mean, there's, there's all these like now like mini subcultures within the broader like parkour culture um and it's cool to see those kind of starting to like flourish and develop kind of like um you know like a species and uh, it started as one organism and then as it evolves it, it grows and it speciates into many different species mm. um all with different sort of uh focuses <laughs> and different uh, ways of, of adapting and, and leveraging you know its environment or whatever so that's kind of neat to see um how that's evolved but at the same time um, I really have appreciated, I think there's something that I, I noticed way back in the day, but I think I'm appreciating it more and more and more now is, and this might be a selection bias, but I think that a lot of people in parkour are very thoughtful and very, and kind of tend towards more of a philosophical outlook. Um, maybe it's just because those are the ones that I pay attention to <laughs> or I'm friends with, but um, I don't know, there's some weird correlation there maybe. And, and I, I still see that there. And, and I really like that about it. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of cool. And uh, I, I wonder why that's the case, or maybe it's not, but uh, what's your perception on that? Is that just, <laughs> I, I have the exact same perception. I was just like, I think it's there. I'm not totally sure that I'm not just like reaching and I have an own bias where I'm like wanting that because that's things that I like and interested in. Yeah. Maybe um, it's that. But I do feel like Maybe it's one of the subcultures. <laughs> it may be that just that there's that many people doing it now that there's just that many people in the, you know, because there are certainly people that are into that kind of like more philosophical, more thoughtful, maybe approach, and they just exist in the world. And then, you know, just like in parkour, there's a more, maybe it's the exact same subset, the same percentage of those people are in parkour. I, I, I kind of agree, or I, I'd like to think, and I actually don't. I, I still think that like, you're right. I, I think there is just like um, a little bit extra of that in the parkour community. And I think it might just have to do with that it's a young community still, I would say. And so it has a lot of people that were early to adopt it still, like that are, you know, especially people that have made a name or are big voices in the community. They're, they're people that are, they're, you know, especially someone like you, for example, that was really out there when it made no sense to be doing this thing, really, you know, like, I mean, now there's lots of reasons and there's career paths and there's, you know, it's more understood, but there's people that, you know, in the very first beginning and, and you know, Seb and the Yamakaze are the ultimate, obviously, but people that are really engaging with life at that level of just, you know, what am I doing with my life, you know, and like, how, how do I want to come at it? And there's, and answering some big questions, and I think that we haven't diluted that out yet. And I hope we never do. But, but I think that is like ultimately trajectory of like a, a sport as it becomes more mature is it eventually it ends up in the Olympics and then it dies. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like eventually oh, it just kind of like it's, 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 
it's teased out into all these different things and um and maybe you know it becomes rigid that's sort of the structure that i've come to understand that happens with all things and even all life like a giant tree will grow up and then eventually it becomes too big for its own britches and you know it'll die but um i think we're still like you know a sapling not, not a sapling but we're like pretty young and so i think we still have a lot of that vigor and that um questioning and uh just i don't know i'm kind of rambling on now but i feel like yeah. i feel like it's there i feel like it's there yeah yeah i guess Thanks in a way I, i'm a little bit surprised that not surprised but a little yeah i guess surprised that um parkour is not a bigger thing than it is i mean i know there's like parkour gyms all over the place now mm. and probably i think it's bigger among amongst like younger kids like teenagers and stuff um, but still like, it's fairly rare. Like now every, everyone knows about it. Like you ask the yeah. average person, it's like, everyone knows what parkour is. Um, and they might have like a friend or a brother who like jumped off one thing one time and said parkour, <laughs> but <laughs> it's still fairly uncommon, at least in my, the, the circles and places that I go to actually meet someone who has trained parkour seriously or takes it, you know, seriously and just trained for years and is like really in the, in that world. So it's, it's still in a weirdly, um, and again, might be selection bias, but it's just, um, it still seems a little bit underground or it's, it's at least in terms of like serious practitioners of it. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think that's, that's an interesting point. And it, it might be, it might be, there might be related, you know, because, because that there there is sort of this philosophical component it takes a certain mind to really get into it maybe um if that's truly kind of a part of the practice obviously we know we can do whatever we want with it and so but i think uh i think that i'm not saying be, it's a bad thing either i mean no i'm not i'm not either i'm just saying like it might be because that of that you know what i mean like takes that, a special kind of person, I guess. It takes a kind of person that like is more because I don't know. I don't know though. Because yeah, definitely just, there's all types. There's all types. I think I've seen like, you know, every face in the community at some point, you know, more or less, um, that I see out in the world. Like there's a parkour practitioner version of that person. So <laughs> but uh um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like a yeah, mini snapshot of the <laughs> so, wider society. Yeah. Um, well, I, um, I really appreciate your time. I know you got to get going really soon here. So, um, is there anything else that you want to add or like, you know, I just appreciate you, you know, what you're doing and obviously people need to go watch your videos. I, I would allow that myself because I think you do such a good job of researching and breaking these things down and citing everything. And, um, what's next, I guess, for you is the last question for me about, you know, your engagement with parkour but then just like where you're taking your life more broadly yeah that's a good question <laughs> that's what i'm trying <laughs> to figure out i mean you know i love putting out good ideas and, and spreading good ideas um so you know i want to keep doing that and i i love where i live and I'm, I'm continuing to kind of do projects here on the land um and i want to you know keep keep making this more productive both as both as a homestead um, I'm not doing it for for money, but you know, just productive as a homestead, building the community here. You know, my all my friends and people that help out and the and family that help out, make it possible. And also, you know, helping build the the soil fertility, build the the ecological diversity and health uh, of this little piece of land here, northern Michigan too. So um, that's kind of where my efforts 
are right now um but mm -hmm. it's fairly open i don't have super yeah i don't i guess i'm not i'm not authoring my story in, in a lot of detail at this point kind of, <laughs> just kind of uh riding on my on my lord resting on my laurels as they say. <laughs> i don't know but no I'm, I'm having a great time though so you know i'm very happy where i'm at and kind of like the general sense of where things are going so i'm just kind of going to keep rolling with it and uh, i really appreciate this opportunity to to chat and and uh it's, it's fun to chat so uh and i again pre <laughs> i like your podcast it's uh it's cool um to to catch up especially you know my old my old friends that um that i remember from way back in the day so so yeah thanks again for having me my absolute pleasure and honor and um yeah thank you thank you again we'll cut it right there that's what's up wow thank you levi for being a part of the show and once again i advise everyone to jump into that description and visit all the links check out his channel he i just can't stress enough what incredible videos he puts together and a little quick update from me just got back from the uk did a fat trip shout out that team even though i didn't see them um because i rarely use that word in that context but hey fat trip through the uk and saw a bunch of old homies, great friends, made an appearance on the store podcast. I thought I was going to get my own podcast. Got none. I just, yeah, I thought I was getting out there. And you know what? I just needed the time off and just not to work and just to enjoy myself. And so that's what we did. And it was awesome. Um, but big thanks to Callum for having us on the store podcast. I'm pretty sure he's listening. So much love to you, bro. And um, if you guys haven't listened to that, you should and and more you have max henry on that episode with me and you know calm's been dropping all kinds of great content with the podcast and you know obviously the stories you guys all know but um great to see everybody out there went up to london and also over to bristol after going to brighton for the most of the first half of the trip and it was a crazy maelstrom if you've seen any of the content coming out of there there's just been it's like the anti-British invasion. It's like the American invasion. We went back. The blue coats or something. I don't know. We're just taking back over, dude. It's crazy. But um, let's see. That's pretty much it. Oh, no, that's not it. One last thing. Big thing. Um, next few episodes that we're coming out are going to come out of this channel are the parkour history series that I mentioned in the store podcast and that maybe i've mentioned here before parkour history with max henry coming at you very soon um really just again i was i was just on a complete hiatus i wanted to totally unplug so haven't done the work that i thought maybe it was going to get done but we're back in it now hitting the ground running and we got a two-part episode dropping first i'll probably introduce a little even like trailer preview because i really think this project needs a little bit of a, a grand entrance you know this is a really cool thing that max has put together for the most part and i get to participate with you guys in and share so that's what's up on the next few episodes definitely look forward to that two-parter coming out on george Hebert to start off the parkour history series you guys know the first episode is going to be kind of a pre-history and then you know up leading up into his influences 
and what made him who he was. And then um, we, you know, we'll dive a little deeper on the second half for George A. Bear. So that's going to be fun. There's so much to come with that. So we'll just, we'll just catch you in these future episodes. All right. That's been plenty on the front and the back end of this episode of the podcast 112. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Jump in that description. You guys hear that? It just started raining. Make it rain. I love you guys. Peace out.